Hi, I'm Dan Wilton, the CEO of First Mining Gold. First Mining is a project developer advancing two projects uh, primarily, our Springpole project in Ontario and our Duparquet project in Quebec. Well, I'm coming to you live from the uh, from the BMO conference in Miami, Florida. Oh, well, there we go. That's the question I was going to ask. Dan, thank you very much for the introduction. Uh, good to be speaking to you. We're grabbing 10 or 15 minutes of your time. You're in between meetings. Uh, what's the mood like at the conference? You know, it's very positive. But one of the interesting, really interesting things about this conference is uh, for the first time, I think you've got the number of, um, you know, uh, battery metals and critical minerals people outnumbering the gold people uh, at these conferences, which historically was always kind of 80% gold focused. This mm. is very much on base metals, critical minerals, which is quite interesting. And the other thing is there are a number of, um, of uh, generalist investors who are here and a lot of them trying to figure out how to play the battery metals uh, and critical minerals uh, opportunities particularly, but you know, well, provides opportunity for us to make introductions and have them hear our stories as well. Within the battery metals, is there is, is there kind of is there are people chasing after the copper companies, or is it nickel, or is it lithium, or is it just the, the whole suite? A lot of it is battery metals, and I think when I say battery metals, uh, you know, more on the lithium, cobalt, rare earths, graphite. Let's say, Wolf. Um, there's a lot of sort of supply chain people looking at uh, at how we're going to make sure that they have supply for the battery gigafactories that they have to build to put in all of our electric cars. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, and then follow on from there. I think you have, uh, yeah, you've got nickel, you've got copper, lots of other um, more in the base metal electrification, base metals as well. Gosh, amazing! Good luck to anybody trying to navigate the. The rare earths and the and the graphite space and the cobalt space. I mean, how hard could it be, right? There's, whew, it's all it easy. Be, yeah, exactly. It can be plenty hard, plenty hard. But um, <laughs> what about the love for the gold sector? I I I know the gold price. If we look back three months, the gold price was sixteen fifty, and then we look back three weeks, and it was nineteen fifty, and here we are, and it's eighteen fifteen, eighteen twenty. What's the what's what's the love? What's your what's your dance card looking yeah. like? Uh, well, you know, our dance card's pretty full here. Um, and I would say for us, it's probably 75% uh, meeting with corporates. Um, a lot of interest in people starting to look at that next stage of their pipelines. And then 25% more on sort of traditional investors. So uh, it's a good mix, but uh, particularly this conference is always kind of skewed for us into making sure we're getting profile kind of in the strategic markets where we have a good chance to catch up with a bunch of people who we, you know, who follow our projects, but really, you know, catch up a couple of times a year. This is the time in the spring, this or PDAC, and then Beaver Creek usually or Denver Gold Show in the fall. But, you know, what's interesting is with a couple of the bigger moves that are that are kind of afoot in, uh, in bigger deals in the gold sector, the, you know, Yamana deal with Pan American and Agnico and the whole Newmont Newcrest. I think there's a really interesting focus on what becomes non-core in those companies mm-hmm. once those deals are done. And that's where I think, you know, I'm really optimistic coming out of this. That there's going to be a pretty meaningful reshaping of some of the uh, the asset portfolios in the industry. So something to be thinking about. Ah. And so you, by implication, you're saying that could reshape the or redefine the, the mid-tier um, of the of the industry, very much so, very much so. And, you know, I think there's there's a number of those assets sitting in existing mid tiers that are 
you know, kind of approaching maybe not end of mine life, but you can see it from here, you know. Some of these mines have six, seven, eight years of mine life left. And, um, you know, when companies are taking some different the different approaches and focuses on different parts of the world, uh, there's a few of these things, I think, that are going to shake out and provide, you know, interesting, interesting changes in that landscape, consolidation opportunities. And, yeah, just lots change is good in, uh, in this part of the industry. And um, you presumably see your asset base, kind of things like Duparquet, things like Springpole, fitting into a project pipeline or kind of a development for a mid-tier. Yeah, listen, I think we have a large cap company development pipeline when you look at it. Uh, you know, I think there's uh, there's a lot of companies that would love to have line of sight on 600,000 ounces of productive capacity in Canada, you know, before 2030. We're optimistic that we can provide a pretty big chunk of that right now, but certainly when when our company's trading sub $10 an ounce. There's not a lot of other people who are kind of buying into that thesis yet. But yeah, I think it, it, uh, it, it, what it does is creates more companies with a growth imperative. And, you know, we are sitting today and have been, you know, for the four years that I've been here, advancing these projects toward that point when the industry is going to need them the most. And that's when these development projects are going to be the scarce resource. We have a slide in our investor deck where we look at, you know, here's the largest undeveloped projects in Canada. You know, we have two of the top 15. But if you fast forward three years from when everything that's in construction today is built. Yeah. In first mining gold, we're going to have two of the top 10, really two of the top eight projects in Canada. Yeah. Like that's, you know, that's pretty exciting. Can we just kind of um, look at, first of all, Spring Pole. Um, you've got a nice timeline in there of um, aiming for the um, pre-feasibility study uh, later this year with um, kind of a technical and project update in the first half of this year. Um, can you just kind of tell me a little bit more about that plan? Yeah, so really uh, the technical updates um, would just kind of be the result of a lot of the feasibility study work that has been done. We are 75% done our feasibility study now. Um, you know, uh, still a lot of work to do to bring it together, but of the constituent component pieces, a lot of that work has been done and we're starting to kind of get an understanding of what that's going to mean. But I think ultimately we'd like to reflect that in an up-to-date technical study, uh, before the end of the year, uh, and certainly kind of on track to be able to do that, uh, just because there's been some scope changes in the project as we've gone through the environmental assessment process. And I think some really good thought that went into our project design um, as we, you know, incorporated a lot of the views of our our permitting and, and uh, you know, environmental consulting advisors um, who have permitted pretty much every big gold mining project in Ontario in the last 20 years. So, you know, have a great team that have been helping us out with that. So I think we'd like to reflect that um, and ultimately just be able to give a snapshot in that project that we think we're kind of locking down for the final EA approval. So starting to put that final EA document together, aim to submit that middle of 24. Um, and with that final EA submitted, it should be about a 12 month process for EA approval. It's very cool. Yeah. Okay. And in that time, so complete the feasibility study in that time as well, which you know, kind of targeting end of 24 to have a fresh feasibility study as you round the corner into your into your final EA approvals. When you say you're kind of 75% done on, the, on that study work, um, am I right in thinking you've had, you're going to put out an interim 
kind of a pre-feasibility study at the end of this year. Is that? Uh, have That's I, have I got... Yeah, I think okay. I think we'd like to do that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And uh, normally, the pre-feasibility studies show the um, show the range of options. They, they show a number of things that you looked at with an optimum. You say, well, this is actually the one. This 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 the scope, the scale, the schedule that we've chosen because it's the uh, best NPV matched with the best permitting timeline with the best development. You know, it's it's the one that you've selected as a board as being the the the, the best fit for your company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think you know we would be starting with that. Um, particularly, uh, I, we've done a bunch of that trade-off work. I don't think yeah. the study would incorporate all of that trade-off work no. necessarily, but at least kind of put the what is that we think a snapshot of what we think the final project is going to be, and and the main reason we wouldn't be at final feasibility is there's still some field data collection and drilling, particularly around geotechnical work yeah. that we need to do. Um, we didn't really have the budget for that this year. So push that off to, to something that we can look to separately fund and execute, you know, or the later this year or, you know, early next. So that then, you know, leaves us that last piece of data collection. You're then just really finalizing most of the design and scope is done. It's just incorporating that into a final feasibility study, you know, OPEX and CAPEX estimate. Thank you. Uh, I know we're really short on time, so I'm going to gallop through a couple more questions. Um, sure. Indigenous communities, First Nations, um, you, you talk about submitting the the uh, EA in the first half of next year. You know, how much um, dialogue... Um, you know, what's the timeline with the, with the First Nations? Kind of, how does that fit with your revised permitting and the and and the the, the timelines for delivering your EA, please? Yeah, so that's uh, it's important. We've got um, with a couple of the indigenous communities we have engagement agreements with, and we've actually got a fair amount of feedback from from those communities already. Um, much of what we would need, they've reviewed the draft EA. We've got comments on that that we can incorporate. Uh, into the final um, for three of the shared territory protocol nations around Springpool, which are very important communities for us. Uh, we've agreed to support an indigenous assessment. So we're right now just in the process of scoping that out and what that's going to look like. But that's basically a process really led by the communities for them to have the capacity and capability to um really study and understand what are the critical things for them and make sure that we then understand all of those uh, issues of uh, traditional land use and uh, traditional knowledge that we can then incorporate those things into that uh, final EA. So, you know, I think it's something we're still trying to sort out what exactly the timelines are going to be for that study and that work. But um, making good progress on that. I know the communities have retained advisors and we're really hoping that we can, um, you know, have that work progressing here because uh, it's something that is really important to um, how we scope the project. So really looking forward to getting that feedback and input from the communities. From the way you describe it, it's almost like while you're doing your environmental baseline and your flora and fauna studies, they're effectively doing a kind of a cultural baseline study and kind of getting their documentation in place of what's uh, their priorities are so that then you can interact with it. Yeah, and in addition, it gives them the the capacity and support to have external advisors review the draft EA. And, and then really the, the critical question is what would we need to incorporate or change 
through their review of the EA to be able to, you know, make sure that we are um, uh, looking out for the things that they've identified as really critical in, in their own assessment. But this is a pretty novel. It's happened a few times in Canada, but this is really one of the first um, Indigenous-led assessments. And I think it's going to become the norm. We're really excited to be participating in it because um, I think it's it really is going to kind of set a new standard. And, and you know, we're hopeful that, uh, A, it, it um, gives us the, the feedback through the environmental assessment process to, to know what are those changes that are important to the communities. But no, I, th- I really think it, it should set a new standard. We're hopeful for community engagement where we can really have the project move forward and be better understood by members of the community and, you know, make sure that their voices are heard because that's a very important part of this process. Uh, well, congratulations for setting up an innovative structure and, uh, you know, working on that in such a collaborative way. Um, again, short of time, so I'm going to jump onto the next one. Um, cash and non-core assets, you've got some carried interests and residual interests and in some assets coming to production. Uh, you've just sold your... Uh, your portfolio, your royalty portfolio of 19 royalties for $6.7 million. Um, what's your cash position and how are the other assets progressing towards kind of monetary value? Yeah, so cash position today would be about $15 million. Um, you know, marketable securities, another 10 on top of that, other cash and share payments to come through uh, the other deals that we have is about another $18 million. And then we have the project interests at Hope Brook and Pickle Crow. Um, so our partner projects are doing very well. Um, Ateco Minerals at Pickle Crow has just raised another $9 million and is going to have, I think, a couple of drills during going forward, which we're obviously very excited about. We're in a carried interest position there through to a construction decision. Um, and uh, Big Ridge uh, Gold, I think, is about to put out a resource update, which we're excited to see. Um, they've had some good exploration success on 25,000 meters of drilling, and they're about $12 million into a $20 million earn-in spend, maybe a bit more than that now. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, those projects keep going. You know, what a lot of people forget, Merlin, is you know our partners on those two projects and on Treasury Metals, which just put out a new pre-feasibility study last week, which, last week? Yeah, last week. Uh, which I think um, in this environment shows very, very well that they're able to maintain... You know, NPV still, uh, you know, greater than CapEx and um, continuing to, to demonstrate advancement on that project. Our partners have spent probably somewhere between 60 and $80 million on these projects over the last three years. Like that's money that we didn't need to spend to advance those. And we have residual, um, you know, share positions or project interests in these assets that are really worth something. And I think when we get into a better gold market where these companies start getting, you know, a little bit better traction, um, better recognition of, you know, the fact that they're advancing real projects here, I think there's tons of upside on those positions to be turned into cash down the track, which will, you know, I think give us the flexibility to keep moving on, you know, what we're advancing with Springpool and Duparquet. Super. Well, good luck at the conference. Thank you very much for the update. And uh, I look forward to more news fl- um, kind of news flow through the course of the year. Now, there's going to be more, Marlon. Don't you worry. There's lots to come.